At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about making quilts. Today on Your Patterns Are Us, we'd like to thank the people, Mark. Sometimes we don't thank people that we should thank. Patreons for one. But that being said, there's people that do work for us. Like they do all our print work, like say Brian Torrens, who does all our print work for us. And Jimbo and Joe, who play games with us when we need them to and bob the builder who we know is just a myth but who helps us out internally i just want to make sure like these people understand how grateful we are for all of their help mark we ventured back out into the we have official so very wrong about games youtube video review how exciting is that Well, I'm excited. I hope I hope people like it. I, I, I'm more. I, I have more trepidation with respect to it. I mean, we said we were going to do it. People want us to do it, or at least we've received some early feedback that people wanted us to do it, and uh, we'll see if people like it. We have a re- video review of Cosmic Frog up on YouTube on our YouTube channel. So very wrong about games. So go check it out if you're at all inclined, and if not, that's fine too. All right. Now after that wet blanket, this is a podcast about board <laughs> games. We're going to talk about the games we played this week. The news and why it doesn't matter, and then our feature game, which is, crazily enough, Cosmic Frog. Mark, what did you play this week? Got another game of Spirit Island Jagged Earth in, this being the second expansion to Spirit Island. I commented previously about how Grinning Trickster stirs up trouble morphed into curiosity sated by Rampant Bloodshed. In this case, I was experimenting again with new spirits, this time Vengeance is a Burning Plague. I commented on this on Twitter. The arc of my experience could could roughly be summed up by a series of statements that I was that was definitely running through my head as I was planning. The first was, I'm I'm curious to see how this thing works. Then immediately followed up by, I'm not sure how this works. I'm not sure how this works. I'm not sure I can make this work. Maybe maybe if I Okay, followed by BAM! Followed by Dead. 
with. Yeah, I was regularly doing seven or eight damage to invaders in the fast phase, and anyone who's played Spirit Island knows that that is a pretty impressive feat, and I was doing that without using anything but the innate power of Vengeance as a Burning Plague. It definitely doesn't jive with my normal playstyle. It it encourages you to take losses, especially losses early. And those losses effectively establish a sort of infrastructure with which you can deal out damage later on in the game. I'm going to have to jump back in because, like you said, some of these combos sound really fun to get off. Sort of like the epic battle wars, you know, when you get the summoning crazy combo. So I might oh, it's, oh, it gets wild. Yeah. And we'll be exploring more of Spirit Island Jagged Earth. We've got some interest in trying out some of the scenarios. We're, some of the experienced players are a little bit leery about the scenarios. We like the adversaries a little bit more than some of the scenarios because the adversaries tend to give you a little bit more latitude in how you're going to develop your powers, whereas the scenarios seem a little bit more like a tactical puzzle that prioritizes a certain subset of skills. But that having been said, we're going to be exploring more of the content as time goes on, and that was more impressions of Spirit Island Jagged Earth. Nice. You talked a lot about Shards of Infinity and the fact that there's a campaign sort of co-op situation going on, so we gave that a try, and I thought they did a fantastic job of it, right? There's not much upkeep. It flows fairly well. There's not a lot of things going on. You sort of just draw each draw a card, each hit does, you know, what the card says, and then you move on to, you know, building your deck in cool and interesting ways, and you get to, you know, if you win a battle, you get to keep some, you know, cards so your deck's a little bit better at the start of the next game. And overall, I thought they did a great job. They, uh, the way they used interaction where sometimes it was sort of weird. Sometimes you draw off other people's deck, which sort of took away the whole deck building sort of thing. And it's like, but there was other things that they let you do that were, you know, fairly interesting. Well, that effect wasn't meant to be a bonus. No. The, the fact that it disrupted synergies, I think, was part of the. No, not that the fact that it was, I meant uh, like player interaction. I mean, it was like a way to introduce ah. player interaction. Well, so there was a lot of interaction in the sense of giving us a little bit more latitude to specialize. One of us could do more healing, and the other one of us could do more offense. It wasn't a requirement that everyone have a balanced deck, as it were, but it didn't really shake out to something that was especially specialized, like you might find in some other co-op experiences. It was mostly just a question of, are you generating combat this turn? Okay, could you help me out by getting rid of this champion that's sitting out in front of me? And you could, as I say, split healing between different characters based on who needed it. And I agree that given the simplicity of the architecture of Shards of Infinity, and this is not a criticism, the bosses definitely fit into that kind of architecture. Each boss would have an 18-card deck, and you just pull cards off the top, and they, they do what they say they do, as you say. And the campaign was three sessions long, which for me was just the right length. I'm sick to death of overarching campaigns and really elaborate stuff. Yeah, plus I think if I heard any more of the story that went along with that campaign, I think if it went any longer, I think... I'm oh, it was painful. I mean, it's, it's yeah. just this... It, it's a far-future absurdity kind of thing, and I kind of knew going into it that the trappings of the setting were not really going to be doing a whole lot of work. And, and, and I like the fact that they gave you choices. It's sort of like pick your own adventure. Do you want to fight this boss or this boss? You know, follow this line if you fight that boss. Although the first choice... The first choice of which boss to fight was ridiculous. You could either choose somebody... I'm, I'm going to exaggerate, but only a slight little bit. You could either go and stomp the face of somebody who's a researcher who is accidentally going to unleash some sort of evil in the world, or you can go fight the rampaging, marauding bandit slaver who's going to destroy your hometown. It's like, well, <laughs> there was an in, you know, there's an interesting philosophical question about if you could rewrite the universe such that you would remove, say, a vicious murderer who kills a single person or an incompetent administrator who causes the starvation of hundreds of thousands, which would you do and why? That might potentially be interesting. 
But if you have the malevolent administrator who starves 200,000 people and the innocent person who accidentally runs over a puppy, well, the choice becomes a little bit more clear anyway. I very much enjoy Shards of Infinity. It is a great simple deck builder, and it was good to see that the quote-unquote campaign was not really much of a campaign and did not mess with the fundamental yeah. cleanliness of the system. And they did a cool thing like this. They did in Rune Age. Rune Age is a really interesting deck building game from uh, Fantasy Flight that's like the, the Tyranoth system. So when you have like a, a boss, they say use cards with these symbols, right? And they give you a list off a bunch of generic symbols, and there's all these different decks, and they sort of form up to form the boss. And they did the same sort of thing in this. They have like, you know, like six different decks, and this boss will use, you know, a mixture, you know, pick these two for this boss. You know, and I think it's nice and quick. You don't have to have, you know, hundreds of cards for every boss. Exactly. So that was Shards Infinity, Shadow of Salvation. And the designers are Gary Arendt and Justin Gary. Actually, the designers of Shadows of Salvation were Justin Gary and Ryan Sutherland. Oh, I apologize. No, that's fine. But the base game, as you yeah, said. base is. game. I got to play Castle Itter. Castle Itter has the tagline, The Strangest Battle of World War II. This was designed by David Thompson and put up by DVG. DVG being Danvers Games, the company owned by Danvers and that publishes the games designed by Danvers and Ga- Danvers and Games. Although, this being put by David Thompson... This was sent to us as a review copy, and Castle Itter is a solo war game, kind of sort of akin to some of the states of Siege games, but not really. One thing that I noticed right away is that it uses our very favorite line of sight system, namely the one introduced in Tannhauser and borrowed quite cleverly in Unmatched. Every space is color-coded, and so you can see another individual if you're both on the same color-coding. And Castle Itter is indeed about a very, very strange conflict. This happened near, very near the end of the war, in which a prisoner of war camp that had been set up by the Wehrmacht to house French prisoners fought off a, an attack by an SS unit. And so what you had were, on the one side, you had the Waffen-SS, who were trying to storm the castle. On the other ha- side, you had a coalition consisting of, and this is not exhaustive, but you had an American tank crew, members of the Austrian resistance, French prisoners... German Wehrmacht officers and an SS officer who was helping to command the entire affair. So it was ger- hot German on German action near the closing days of World War II. Yeah, it must have been like, it sounds like one of those old Dirty Dozen uh, movies, you know, honestly, starring Telly Savalas and, and Clint Eastwood. Honestly, I'm amazed that it has not been adapted into, number one, more war games, and number two, more televisual or cinematic exploits. Because, just as an example... It has the son of Georges Clemenceau showing up and rallying German riflemen. It has a retired French pro tennis player vaulting over a 15-foot wall, running across an open field so as to be able to warn the oncoming uh, American allies about the German entrenched artillery. It's ridiculous what happened. Anyway, all these things are reflected in the game with very, very simple rules. Castle Itter is extremely simple. It, it's it's very, very uh, streamlined. And I very, very much enjoy all the things you get to do as a player. Unfortunately, though, the biggest downside to Castle Itter, I'd have to say, is how streamlined it is. Because you do your five actions, and you're not allowed to activate anybody who's been activated before. And so very frequently, what you have is soldiers going on a one-on-one-off cycle, where in round one, they go do something. In round two, they recover. Round three, they might do something again. Round four, rinse, repeat with minor variations on this. And activating the AI is very simple. Effectively, what you do is you do five actions, pull three cards from an AI deck. Five actions, three cards from an AI deck, over and over until the deck is done, and then you count up your score. The problem is, is that although resolving a lot of the AI actions are simple, 
the cards are not used very well, so there are some minor quality of life improvements that I would like to see uh, to, to see, and just keywords or some simple text reminders to to work the various procedures. And number two, it is vastly more time consuming to resolve the AI actions, even though they're simple, than it is to do your own actions. And what that does is it has a deleterious effect on the enjoyment of a solo player, especially because there's nobody to split up the, the tasks with. And even if you could, they all have to be done sequentially. And so I might do my five actions, which is say flip two counters, roll three dice. And then I pull a single AI card and the AI, AI card says, okay, roll to see where this is placed. Roll for suppression. Roll to see where this other thing is placed roll for suppression maybe again roll for hit location roll for and so you're doing all these rolls and again it's fine but you end up having the sense that you're spending most of the time doing upkeep which is a shame because it's really nice it's really clever it does a lot of things right i really 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 like the system and i was very enthusiastic about the play of it and the sort of overall narrative arc of how this bizarre engagement was modeled with a reasonable degree of verisimilitude in a very, very simple streamlined way, which is ideally what you want out of the sort of an intro, especially solo war game. But the quantity of upkeep put a little bit of a damper on it, so it makes me wish I'd split it up into two or three sessions, a very, very short play, which is probably how I'm going to do it next time. Now, again, to Castle Inter's strength, there are a lot of ways to up the difficulty. One of the ways is through a tactics deck, which unfortunately would then in further increase the amount of upkeep you have to do on behalf of the AI forces. Also, to its very much to its credit, Castle Eater has a very, very nice set of designers and historical notes, which every war game, in fact, I think every game period ought to have. It's available online by David Thompson, and it was just such a pleasure to read about this bizarre escapade. Now, I mean, I think most war is pretty absurd, not in a sense of ha-ha way, but in, in a sort of existential absurdity way, but honestly, this this entire engagement was ridiculous. So I had, I had a lot of fun with Castle Itter. I was a little bit tired of the upkeep by the end of the play, so as I say, future experiences with it, I'm probably going to bust things up. Castle Itter is also, for what it's worth, very, very similar in a lot of its systems to another game published by DBG, designed by David Thompson, namely Pavlov's House, which is now in its second edition. I also got that in a review copy. I will probably be trying that over the course of this week, and maybe playing Castle Itter again, time depending. So that, that that was my first experience with Castle Itter by DVG and David Thompson. All right. On the subject of streamlined and simple, I give you Kingdom Builder by Donald X. Vaccarino and Queen Games. So in Kingdom Builder, you're going to draw a card. Think <laughs> thus endeth the explanation. Thus, thus endeth. Well, just thankfully you get to draw it at the end of your turn. Like, can you imagine if you like draw it at the beginning of your turn and then start figuring it out? I'm sure. Anyway. <laughs> This being said, you draw a card, and then when it comes around to your turn, you're going to be placing three of your little, there's this giant hexed map all divided up into territories, and the card will tell you what territories you are to place your little houses in. But the little houses have to go adjacent to already present little houses of yours, if you have some on the board. So I think the strategy is, is make sure you place your little houses so it's advantageous advantageous and you're scoring points but try not to touch the other terrain types so as to when it comes up you get to place them wherever you want as opposed to having to place them adjacent to ones you already have and not giving you any points there's also all these tiles all over the map that you if you place a house next to you, you get to collect and they'll give you all sorts of placement bonuses i think i think there's more to it than what i've seen so far i'm seeing a little bit of the strategy and a little it's I've I played it quite a few times, Mark. It is strikingly inoffensive, 
because it's just it just does what it does and 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 that you get a game through over and pretty quickly. Yeah, I played it once shortly after it came out and my recollections are mostly that of yours relatively bland. And that is Kingdom Builder. <laughs> got to play another game of Las Vegas Royale, the very simple Rudiger Dorn dice area majority game. Again, a very pleasant playing. I managed not to make any references this time to Pulp Fiction, so I think I deserve some kind of medal. The great thing about Las Vegas Royale is you're going to get a tremendous amount of variability of the good kind from your dice placement, and you're going to get a lot of variability of the excellent kind from the various casino powers that are going to come up. And there's quite a few in the box, because Las Vegas had a whole bunch of expansions. Las Vegas Royale is now kind of the definitive edition put out several years at after the fact. And I commented when we were discussing Istanbul how Rudiger Dorn is mostly putting out relatively more simple fare over the past five years. And although Istanbul isn't really to my taste, Las Vegas Royale is very, very much to my taste in the sense of, of uh, simpler, approachable Euro games. Because I love Area Majority, and if you compare Las Vegas Royale to a dice drafting game, there are lots of heavier games that are at least more involved games. Games like Coimbra, games like the upcoming Tekenu, which will give a shot to, and, and, and no doubt in due course. But Las Vegas Royale is essentially kind of like a dice drafting game, except you're just drafting at the start of your own role. And so you get a little bit of that excitement of rolling a fistful of dice, which is very evocative of the fact that it's ostensibly a Las Vegas game. And the honestly, the wild swings of fate that you might expect from this amount of dice throwing just don't materialize precisely because it's more about things like timing. It's more about things like com competition and standard kind of area majority contests, which again are pretty much one of my favorite Euro mechanisms. So you're not really rolling desperately trying to get the result you want. It's more a question of when do I want to commit to what, and dice just offer vague contours to that, like your better dice drafting games. Anyhow, I'm a big fan of Las Vegas Royale. It's probably one of my favorite fillers, definitely one of my favorite fillers of the past few years. It doesn't outstay at welcome. It has lots of lo lovely little nice moments and tons of variety. It's not the deepest thing in the world, but at, you don't necessarily need it to be. I very much enjoy Las Vegas Royale. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm wondering if you just change the pictures and the theme, and then the, I think the game would like just morph into something completely different. I think it's just very unique the way they incorporate that Las Vegas, you know, theme within the game. Mark, we did a top ten for 2019, and we talked about how Kalis was the number one. And I think I believe if I went back and listened, I think I did talk about if I had played Barrage more, that it would be higher on my list. And I really do think it is bar none the best game of 2019 this is barrage by tommaso battista and simone luciani and it's put out by cranio creations unfortunately yes this is a dice about manipulating a dice water sorry did i say this is dice? you said this was a dice this is a dice this there are no dice. dice you open up the dice and the dice brain is there and you pluck out the dice brain and you hold it in front of the dice mother and you laugh as it cries while it's I don't know what's happening dies. anymore. All right. So this is a game about manipulating water flow, Mark. You're putting up dams and you're storing water and you're coveting it away from the other players <laughs> while you work it through your power systems and create... Preserving the sanctity exactly. and purity of your bodily fluids? Yes. Making power, getting victory points, having this really cool economy wheel where you're spending resources and you put it in the wheel and you turn it around you can't use those resources until they come around again i think they call it rondell i don't think anyone other than you does <laughs> like oh okay sorry it's the spinny round spin spin thing anyway it is a fantastic mechanism and i love this game 
So I still don't think that Barrage was the best game of 2019. I still say it was the King's Dilemma. But anyhow, we played this with uh, for the first time with the expansion. Barrage is one of those games where you never... It can be difficult to get to the expansion if you play a lot of different games as we do because you don't want to bust out the expansion to a game like Barrage. It's not the most complicated thing in the world. In some ways, it has even fewer moving parts than a game of, say... Feast for Odin, or some of the Mind Clash games that we enjoy, for example. But, nonetheless, it's very dense and very confrontational and very zero-sum in a lot of ways. And so you don't want to rush people into the expansion. Yeah, and a, lot, and a lot of the times we're introducing it to someone new, so you don't want to like throw expansions in on top exactly. of Exactly. But this was our first experience with the League Water Project, which adds essentially a new board of action spaces and two mechanisms that, honestly, I feel silly for have... Uh, for for having been so conservative in terms of introducing people to the expansion. If I'd wanted to try it, I think we could, tr- could have tried it a lot easier. Because honestly, when you're explaining a game of Barrage, adding another 30 seconds on at the end is not really going to be the straw that breaks any camel's back. Because it's really, really minimal in terms of the lo- the additional rules load that it has. That having been said, while I agree with you that Barrage is a stellar, stellar game, and one thing that I was reminded of very, very pointedly by my crushing, humiliating defeat at the hands of Dr. Handsome, was that there are various stages to Barrage. And I'm very much more inclined towards the earlier stages, where it's all about jousting for those precious water drops. You then have to try to transition into the endgame phase, where you're generating massive quantities of power, rather than just stealing piddling quantities of power away. To draw an analogy, I play Barrage very much the same way that I play Food Chain Magnate. If I'm making six bucks, and I know that nobody else is making any money, I know I'm winning Food Chain Magnate. And if someone tries to gear up for selling a burger for $53, I can see that coming and try to position away. In Barrage, here I am making my six power here and seven power there, and yeah, that's great for rounds one. That's fabulous for round one. Round two rolls around and suddenly you're barely treading water, no pun intended. Round four rolls around and your opponents are generating 18 power without breaking a sweat. And you're thinking, I'll generate seven. No good. Yes, but I, I did it too late, Mark. And- you did it too late. Dr. Handsome did it right in time. And I should have been making transitions when I, I, I just wasn't. I got lazy. I got complacent. Anyway, speaking specifically about the expansion, as I say, very minimal rules load, which is great. Problematically, though, it kind of undoes one of the other key virtues that I love about Barrage, which is that the worker placement is so, so tight. And that's where you get another layer of player interaction. Because, yes, there's competition over building spaces and there's competition for the water, which introduces a lot of interaction. But the building spaces are so narrowly focused, and there are so few of them, that you're going to be butting up against each other. And it's delicious. Again. Comparing it to Feast for Odin, I love Feast for Odin, but it feels wide open. You never really feel like you're butting up against each other. Eh, A little bit more with the expansion, but never really a lot. When you introduce the League Water Project, what that does is it gets you more ways to get where you are going. For example, there is a building that I unlocked in the League Water Project in the, the new board that allowed me power generation action that was only available for people who had built the building. Well, whether that was only me or even everybody, effectively, the net effect is the same. More spaces with which to generate power. Ergo, less tight. Ergo, less competition. That effect I did not really appreciate. So, going forward, speaking personally, I am going to keep the new country, the new advisor boards, all the new, like, optional modular stuff. But I'm going to leave the expansion elements of the new buildings and the new action selection board away. Both because of the increased simplicity and because of the increased competition. I absolutely love the playing. I adore Barrage. I think it's one of the best Euro management games of the past few years. And I think the League Water Project has a lot of good stuff in it. 
but I don't think it really plays to Barrage's strengths, and that's why I think the League of Water Project, for me, is mostly a pass. That is Barrage. We get to play My City. We did. So on the topic of Kingdom Builder, where there's just a card and things happen, I would like to reiterate something that I mentioned briefly in my review of Raw, and I mentioned to you pretty much every time we play My City. Sometimes playing a Reinhardt Knizzi game makes me feel like a bad critic, because I'm not really able to explain what's going on. Which is hardly surprising. Reiner Knizia is smarter than I am. Big surprise. But when we were playing, especially our first games, because my city is Reiner Knizia's legacy game. It starts out as a tile layer. Well, it, it ends a tile layer. I mean, it's not, spoilers. It does not magically morph into a LARPing experience. <laughs> but as a tile layer to, to start with, it's, th- this is what cartographers should have been. This is pull a card, everyone places this building. And that's pretty much it. There's like, a yeah. very there's like one building restriction there's two building restrictions you have to build orthogonally adjacent to where you already are and you can't build a building that's straddling the river that's it you're done <laughs> it's ridiculous how simple this game is and yet it was so much fun yeah it takes the fun of what is like to the limit or karuba and just like boils it down to just straight up tetris pull a card play a tile everyone's board is so different and it was just it's so oddly fun yes The legacy elements, I think, are handled really well. The differentiation in terms of how your spatial puzzle is going to work uh, ramps up pretty quickly. Like, there's already lots of little new things to explore. The core elements never get complicated. At least they haven't got complicated so far. We've played uh, the first three chapters, which is, say, the first nine games. I'm very much looking forward to to playing the rest because the rules recommend that you knock out three games in a row and they all come in the same envelope and they offer, you know, usually a big evolution in the first game and then minor tweaks on that in the next two games in in, in the chapter. And those tweaks are usually just about, here's just another way to score points. Rarely is it something like, well, here's our special new kinds of building that can only be placed in the following way. Not really. And I compare it to cartographers because one of my complaints about cartographers is you, in order to play quote unquote well, And again, trying to play a roll and write well seems like a a, a very silly thing. But by and large, you try to play a game to your best best of your ability. That's one of the ways that the social contract of the game works at all. But anyway, and you get surprised by these shapes. It's like, oh, if I'd known that shape was in the mix, I would have maybe played differently. Or And then you kind of have to feel like maybe you should memorize the deck. Well, in my city, it's very simple. They're just these tiles. And so very frequently, there would be these push-your-luck elements because if you can't play a tile, you get penalized. You can drop out of a round at any time. You can look at the board and say, okay, well, I can place these tiles, but not these tiles. How much do I want these tiles to come out? How much am I willing to risk, etc.? It's just, my city is bone-simple, does legacy really well, although it doesn't have any sort of shocking narrative em- emergence. Yeah, the zombies haven't attacked our little villages yet. Yes, exactly. I roll. Oh, jeez. But I'm very much enjoying it, and I think it's precisely what, you know, a family-style Euro game should be. My only criticism, and maybe this is because it's a family-style Euro game, there is next-to-no player interaction. So even by the standards of what is arguably a roll-and-write or a, a, a pull-in-place or whatever, however you want to call this kind of structure of game, there is is vanishingly little player interaction. Agreed. And that is My City. By Reiner Knizia. And it's put up by Cosmos Games. 
Finally, for me, I got to play a skirmish game by the aforementioned David Thompson. And this is one of the... Th- I was really looking forward to trying this. It's called For What Remains. And the reason why I was really looking forward to it, above and beyond the fact that David Thompson has been really putting out a lot of excellent designs over the past couple of years, although, as he pointed out to me in an email exchange, this was another review copy sent to me by DVG Games, that this is largely a happenstance of publication scheduling, right? A lot of these games have been in work for years. They just only happen to come out right about the same time. And for what remains, in many ways, is his first design. He, you know played games like Final Fantasy Tactics and really wanted to do something in a board game space, and it's been in development for a while. And on Board Game Geek, he's credited along with Paul Lowe and Ricardo Manuel Luis Tomas, who did a lot of the playtesting and design work and the conceptualization for what eventually became For What Remains. It was kickstarted in three different core boxes. Each core box has two different factions. There's kind of a sort of a campaign-y thing, and there's also a solo system. And as I, circling back to why I was so enthusiastic about it, is I realized that one of the things that I love about the Undaunted system is that in many ways it is the deck builder skirmish game that I wanted Ascension Tactics to be. That marriage of deck building and sort of small unit skirmishy tactics albeit with a sort of war game-ish veneer. And so I thought For What Remains might be something really special. And it is very good. I will say that for, I'll, I'll lead with what's best. The AI system for playing solo is really excellent in terms of giving units orders. Sometimes they do something on a one-off. There's a very, very simple matrix of are they engaged, are they not engaged, are they wounded, etc. And Sometimes they just do something one-off and they do the thing. Sometimes they follow a, a matrix which leads them to have an order. And that is a standing order that they will perform until such time as a trigger is met. For example, might say, head towards the nearest scavenge token, and the moment they pick it up, give them a new order. So they have a standing order, and they're just going to go do that thing until it's completed. It's very simple. It ends up mimicking kind of sort of what a multiplayer experience would be like, which is exactly what I want out of an AI system. I've talked about this before. It operates on a chip pull system. You have a bag full of orders, and you get to make decisions about how to populate the bag, and units get activated when you pull them from the bag. As uh, somebody from a bit of a war game background, I like the chip pull system. It's it it's a good way to obviate initiative systems. My only misgiving was, and again, this is kind of being a victim of your own success, I've seen how good David Thompson is with initiative systems, because the initiative system in Undaunted is absolute genius, so... It wouldn't have been able to be ported, but I, something equally clever would have been truly ma- marvelous. Anyway, For What Remains is, is kind of a post-apocalyptic skirmishy thing, and I very much enjoy it. It's a little bit of a hearkening back to some of the... It, it feels like it's been in development for a long time, whereas the Undaunted games feel like they're sort of on the cutting edge of game design. For What Remains feels like a little bit of a throwback. What do I mean by this? Well, sometimes you have those moves that we've all seen in skirmish games where it's like, okay, well, my movement allowance is five, my range is five, the opponent starts out uh, 40 spaces away. It's like, okay, so your first few turns, you're just making the standard moves and blah, blah, blah. And then, look, it happens really... Real quick, and because it's a chit pull system, you're not going to be mathing everything out, and so it's just a question of moving up five. But you're still going to do those moves in comparison to something like Undaunted, where every move matters and where it's consequential right from the start, or even compared to something like Titan's Tactics, where they just obviate all these problems immediately by making sure that either range doesn't matter or you start off close to it. In other words, there are tricks that you can employ to overcome these kinds of things, and For What Remains doesn't really do that. I'm, I also wish, for what it's worth. 
because small box skirmish games are very much a thing that I like, and this is a, this is a slim game. I wish there'd been a little bit more of the other factions in a base box because what starts out as a very, very economical prospect, namely getting a skirmish game in a box, starts to become a little less economical when you realize, well, in order to get all six factions, you have to buy three different boxes. And at that point, the economy starts to be a little bit less compelling. So I really like the chip system. I like a lot of the abilities. I should emphasize that the different factions feel really good. I like even the fiction. I was not expecting to like the background as much as I did. You know how every post-apocalyptic game, or at least most of them, has that faction that hates technology and thinks that technology needs to be purged because it's responsible for what's wrong with humanity? Yes. This is the first time that I can ever remember in a science fiction setting where that faction felt even remotely plausible and compelling in in the, in the context of this game. Because they're right. Because the apocalypse was started <laughs> by people doing things they really shouldn't have been doing. And so when one of them shows up and says, we are the religious fanatics who want to purge all the technology that ruined the world, I'm like, you know what? You guys got a point. I'm with you guys. <laughs> sign me up. Where do I sign? So uh, there's a lot going on for, for what remains. It really does leverage a lot of simple systems very, very well. I wish that it had done, gone a little bit further. And there are, again, some quality of life issues that I wish had been sorted out. DVG production sometimes is a little bit uneven. The tiles should have been numbered. So setting up the initial tiles is a little bit tricky because you look at the tile, you look at the other side, try to match it up to the visuals of the scenario. If they'd just been numbered, that would have been fine. There's no information on the character chits other than their rank. Not even a number for their defense value, not a number for their movement value, oh, anything weird. like that. It's not super problematic, but I will say this. It has the characteristic David Thompson attack resolution mechanism. Throw a bunch of D10s. If any of them exceed a certain threshold, you inflict a hit. You never inflict more than one hit. And so that remains very, very quick to resolve. The AI is very, very quick to resolve. And so it is a skirmish game that I can play solo without breaking my head in two. And that is not nothing. And the setting is nice. And I like a lot of the units. And the unit variety is delicious. Most skirmish games, in order to be passable, have to have lots of good unit variety. And you do. I just wish there had been more factions. I wish there had been a couple of little modernizing tweaks here and there. And I wish that there had been a little bit less of the, well, I'm moving up to engage. But I am going to be playing more of the solo system, definitely. And uh, possibly multiplayer, depending on local interest. And that is my initial reaction to For What Remains. Those are the games we played this week. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So, Riot Games... Publishers of League of Legends. Oh, you got I, ooh! Have they finally said what their yes. their big project they is? They finally this year. announced what their next board game project is going okay. to be, and I do not care. It is called Tellstones. It is going to be a twenty minute ish game of two or four players, and it looks to be a game of memory and bluff. Uh, unfortunate. It has this two minute trailer so far. We don't have a whole lot of details, but they've made available a trailer which you can go find yourself, where it's mostly about ah. What's the symbol on the other side of this token that I've put down? And the sort of, the, the pitch, again, it's just, just based on a single trailer. It's hard to make too much noise about this. But based on the pitch of it and the associated text, one of the appeals is supposed to be you're not really playing the game, you're playing the other player. Oh. It's supposed to be smack talking and trying to get inside their head to, to psych them out. If only a game like that, oh wait, first of all, that's every game we play. 
you can take any game and turn it into you're playing the player, not not the actual game. And furthermore, Cockroach Poker already does this delightfully when you just tap your card and say this is a stink bug, and then you get to follow up your statement of this is a stink bug with any number of depredations against their mother or claims about their face or their hygiene or whatever. I and mean, there's another fantastic. That game is how you play the game, right? It that, is 100. Yeah, yeah. There's another fantastic game we played. What was it called? Legend, not Legend of the Five Rings, but. Where you put down all your army tokens and you'd bluff people out. Oh, Battle of Rakugan. Battle of Rakugan did the exact same thing as well, where you, you know, trash talked and said, oh, you could, you could put that token there, but I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah. 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 The, the notion, this kind of dovetails with one of my sort of pet peeves in gaming where people point to a game and say, oh, well, you know, this is a game that lets you tell stories with your friends. It's like, okay, first of all, pretty much any game can do that. I'm not really familiar with a game that precludes the ability to do that thing that you're talking about. And further to which, if you're... Uh, anyway, like I say, it's just a trailer. I don't want to review a game on the strength of a trailer. <laughs> but uh, I was looking forward to something more along the lines of an ala- a slightly more elaborate thing like Mechs versus Minions. Yeah, Not necessarily the-, the same type of game. I was hoping... Look, it would have been stupid to hope for a MOBA-style game. Well, because obviously, I'm just saying they set the bar awfully high. It, that is, You're absolutely right. I have no doubt that the production. Well, I, I would hope that the production values are going to be through the roof. But honestly, I it just it just feels like a little bit of a letdown. I'm a bit disappointed. But let's, make up your mind. I was going to say, let's hope that we're we're surprised. Let, yeah, plenty of time to be wrong. Another quick little game that I saw. It's called Meeple Towers. That's being put out by WizKids. And it's just it's visually appealing. You're building these super high towers. The blocks are super chunky. You you put out these big support pillars, and you put levels down and you it seems interesting is it a dexterity game no well no it is not oh yeah that's what led me to it in the first place thought oh it's like a tower building game but no it's it's not it's a family game don't get me wrong there's like oh so you stack families it's very light yes you stack families okay you play these action cards and you just do what the action cards say. You're either putting meeples in like coffee houses or apartments and, and you can't put support beams where there's meeples. And it just seems there's this fiddly part about when you put it on the next level, there has to be supports where the support symbols are on the level that you're putting on. So getting everything to line up seems like it's just going to be tricky. There are rules that you're allowed to. There are cards that you can play that move the sports around, but I'd have to see it played out. It seems like it's a very – I want to give it a try just because it seems very light and fun. Meeple Towers by WizKids. Another game I'm looking forward to trying is Imperium. Imperium is going to come out in two different flavors. This is a sort of civilization card game. It's going to be Imperium Classics and Imperium Legends. This is by Nigel Buckle and David Turtze, who seems to be designing everything these days. I like some of what could be called David Turtze's design philosophy, although often it, it fails to materialize in something cohesive or clean. But I'm always a sucker for civilization games reimagined. And the prospect of having eight different factions from which to choose and it being reduced to a card game, to a certain extent we already saw civilization reduced to a card game, and it was through the ages, and it worked out really well. I'm not suggesting it'll be like through the ages, and I, I'm, I have no familiarity with the output of Nigel Buckle, his co-designer. But this is going to be put, put out by Osprey Games sometime in the near future, and I very much like Osprey Games and a lot of what they do, so I'm looking forward to that. Finally for me, uh, Board Game Geek is restarting their coverage of digital games. They pulled back for a while there, and now they're going hard at it back again. And they, with their newest newsletter, or I guess, or whatever they're calling it, they announced that 
Hiroshima Convoy is going to be coming out September 5th. Interesting. Digital. And anyone who's ever played it, I am a huge fan. So is Dr. Stallone. I'm sure he's more than happy, and I can't wait to give it a try. It's a fantastic head-to-head two-player game, and the fact that it's going to be on a phone might make it that much more quick to play and easy to come out. Finally, news that you have probably seen elsewhere. Eric Lang is soon no longer going to be the director of game design at Cool Mini or Not. He is stepping aside to focus on freelance work and advocacy. The specific advocacy that he's talked about has been about on behalf of the board gaming hobby, although if you follow his Twitter, you also notice that he's been very, very vocal on social justice issues, which, full credit where credit is due, Simon, he says, has been very supportive of, so good for that. He teased a number of designs that are going to be coming down the pike, including a Blood Rage sequel, which I am very enthusiastic about. And for, for, for me, I'm very, very happy that this is happening. We've made a lot of jokes about how Simon has been using Eric Lang's position as a way to talk about how everything is basically an Eric Lang design. We've made jokes about, oh, well, you know, he was, he was passing by the hallway on his way to the bathroom the, the time this was being designed. So now it's an Eric Lang design. And we, we're never really sure of the authorship as a consequence. And anything that leads to Eric Lang producing more games is absolutely for the good for me. And if this gives him more time to just work on his own designs and not have to do whatever the vicissitudes of working for a company has to have him do, I'm a big fan and I wish him all the luck in the world. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the feature game, which is Cosmic Frog, which was given to us as a review copy. Mark, won't you throw Cosmic Frog in our historical timeline? First of all, I'd probably get a hernia because the Cosmic Frogs are three miles tall. Oh my goodness. It's true. So Cosmic Frog was designed by Jim Felly of Devious Weasel Games. Uh, Jim Felly is a very unique and iconoclastic designer. He doesn't really design for the mainstream, even by the standards of hobby designs. His first published design was Shadows of Malice, which was an unapologetically old-school, roll-for-movement kind of co-op adventure thing. It had a lot of really good narrative flourishes. But also a lot of, a lot of die rolling. It's like roll a d6 to see if this d6 ability will trigger. And then that d6 allows you to roll this other d6, which might overcome. Oh boy. A lot of d6s. He then released Zimbi Mojo, which also not really like anything else on the market, followed by Bemused, which was a game about muses trying to drive opponents, artists into suicide. So, you know, another mainstream design, followed then by Door of the Lesser Houses, which is by far, by far, his most conventional sort of standard mainstream design kind of game, which is still really weird. There's <laughs> a lot of, for one thing, Jim Felly doesn't believe in discard piles. He doesn't call them discard piles. It's always like the Trove of Shadows or something like that. Anyway, I can go on and on about all the Fellyisms, the little flourishes that make a design indelibly Jim Felly. And let me just put it this way. Every design, I played everything he's put out under Devious Weasel. I, I played all his published designs. I have regretted not a minute of my time with any Jim Felly design, even when I didn't like the game at all. And to his credit, the way that Jim Felly originally got in touch with us was because of bad things that I've said about Shadows of Malice and Zimbi Bojo. So he's a guy who really, really values the creative process, is super creative, and sometimes he produces these weird things that are also parenthetically fun to play. So... Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary? I was going to say, in, in, I was going to say, in the future though, if you do have any more contact with him, can you explain to him how the font little pull down works? Oh, it's always the same font. Yeah, you, you got to have can, the same font. Can, it's not a, it's not a devious weasel, a devious weasel joint unless you have that font. There's other ones. That, okay. I know there are other fonts. All right. Look, if Jim Felly were interested in catering 
to like it's not that he's indifferent to what his his players want but he clearly like would a man who cares about market demands have produced cosmic effing frog it's true is this the man with the finger on the pulse of anyone other than himself it's so true. and i love him for that anyway why don't you give us an unhelpful summary of what one does in cosmic frog all right in cosmic frog you're playing a two mile high amphibian with an unquenchable hunger for an planetary shards and it's not their fault because they were <laughs> they were built that way small star not included and after they cram their gullet full overloading they sort of waddle over to the edge and 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 teeter off and they traverse the ether in some form of freakishly bizarre frog ballet and then they spew the contents of their stomach into they their disgorge vault. their stomach yes they disgorge their 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 stomach into their vault that is what you get to do in Cosmic Frog. I only made the correction because up till then you have, you have been using technical terms that apply to what's happening. We're not making up gullet here. We're not making up disgorge. We're not making up the fact that when you get punted from the ether, you end up in Dimension 5. These are things that happen in Cosmic Frog. I just want to stress that. The theme is so utterly bizarre, but it's simultaneously so compelling that I defy anyone to rib it. No, we're not doing this again. No? No. What are you talking about, Walker? Stop. <laughs> I don't know what you're I am about. the father. I'm the one that gets to make dad jokes. So I I talked about this earlier and was this, I'm going to start with the rule book. The rule book seems awfully wordy and some people have re- I've read today online that even some people have been put a little off by the rule book. It seems a lot heavier than what Cosmic Frog gives you. I agree. The the rule books for a lot of Devious Weasel games tend to render simple things a little bit more complicated than they need to be. That's one of the things about Door the Lesser Houses, that even though it's a relatively straightforward game of insinuating that your opponents have done foul things with goats in public or in private, is a little bit hard to teach because it has these rough little corners. Cosmic Frog has a lot fewer of those rough little corners, but nonetheless, the rulebook... Sometimes it's terminology, sometimes it's redundancy... Sometimes it's also just the fact that there's like three or four pages of an extended example play at the back. It looks more intimidating than it is. At its heart, Cosmic Frog is a very, very simple game with only one or two things that tend to stick out. And then once you get through the rule book, then you have to set up. And set up is also a bear. Set up's a bear, yeah. There are several dozen tiles, several dozens and dozens of tiles that you have to populate the board with. Well, there's ten different types. That's if you're playing without any of the variants. And you have to mix some of them up randomly. Some of them go in specific stacks. Uh, I will say this. the It would be a lot faster if you didn't have to place, especially the Baron tiles, so precisely on the lovely neoprene mat. But you do because one of the great features of having the neoprene mat and the tiles sized the way they are is you get to see where the splinter strikes might occur. There are these lovely little bits of highlighting. We'll talk about splinter strikes later. It's It's kind of how the game clock works. But yeah, it takes a little bit of time. All right, so enough of a few of the, the minuses. Let's get on to how how the cool the game is. So like, <laughs> like we said, when you once you've got all the tiles out, your your frog descends onto these plateaus and you start gobbling up these pieces of of planetary shards and they have to go into your into your gullet in a certain order because you're tracking it because once you get up to your vault, you disgorge them back out and they have to come out in the reverse order. So last in, first out. And it, and it does this, you know, semi-interesting puzzle where not only is it giving you points, but it's also, you know, helping you during gameplay if you form these things called siphons. It also helps significantly with the educational value of the game. 
because certainly, especially in these times of homeschooling, who doesn't want to teach their child the intricacies of cosmic frog digestive systems? And math. <laughs> That's the lamest excuse for most board games. Of <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, and the um, honestly, the whole spatial puzzle aspect of it can occupy as little or as much of your attention as you want. I don't like spatial puzzles, so I mostly freewheel it. But I do recognize that there's a little bit of room for someone to be a little bit more clever about the, the positioning in order to maximize their score. And so you have four spots in your stomach for these planetary shards. Well, the gullet, strictly speaking, sorry, in, because in your if, you, if you push down into the lower reaches of the stomach and the lower reach of the, the uh, uh, digestive tract, the power of the star that works the cosmic frogs will cause the land to disintegrate. Just want to make sure this, that we have this. This is true. You would just make sure the clarification here. So with an empty gullet, you can move, you can leap, sorry, you can leap four spaces and you go in a straight line across, you know, penguin style as you were in, hey, that's well, frog, my fish. Frog or style, or more frog like. Style, yeah, more yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. And, but as you fill up your, your gullet, you get to move less. And I think that's a really funny and interesting mechanism. So the more, you know, heavier you are, the less you can move. And then, what you have to do is you start. You have to start using this thing called oomph, which is sort of like this, this. So, and then it exactly does what it sounds like. It gives you a little bit more oomph, one hundred percent, right? So you can spend it for all sorts of things, uh, to move further, to uh, take an extra action, to power your special abilities, and then uh, uh, in combat you get to use it to either roll more dice or give bonuses to your dice. And then partway through the game, there's like this huge wave of mutation that comes across and you have to have some in store or else you can't keep the power that you have or, you know, you need some more of it. So you get a choice of the new power. Just uh, I'm going to try to stop going on and on about how this theme is amazing, but it's so telling that the theme is this strange and this bizarre. And yet so much of it makes sense. <laughs> so like true. there's little details about how far a frog can jump and the fact that the frogs jump. <laughs> it's just. Uh, anyhow, uh, so let's talk a little bit about the combat, because I think the combat is is a little bit of a mixed bag. It This is a very confrontational game, and unlike other confrontational games, we talked about Eclipse last time, Eclipse, we both felt, mostly failed to properly incentivize the players to engage in combat. I could envision, I suppose, a group playing Cosmic Frog and playing it quote-unquote wrong, where they don't engage in any combat. It would be hard, though, and they'd have to be pretty blinkered to do that because the incentive structures are pretty well calibrated. Because if I've got a full gullet and no oomph left, I am prey. Especially if I'm stupid enough to do this when I'm within striking distance of another frog. Yes, because like I just talked about, so it takes about two to three actions of moving plus another action that's called harvesting. So another three actions to harvest. So this is a total of five to six actions to get a semi-full or full gullet. It takes one combat action to boot that out of you and into the stomach of another frog. So in a way, it's kind of lopsided and it shows a little bit of weakness in the game, but still is... is. I don't think the lopsidedness is the problem. Well, I think six actions to one action is the problem. Right, but that's if you haven't protected yourself. It's true. You, you and, and it's not just one action to, to, to fight. If you leave yourself with no oomph and you're one action away from being attacked, then yes, you are begging to lose the contents of your gullet. The thing is, though... The fact that that is a grotesquely risky move is immediately obvious, especially after, if you're the one teaching the game, you're able to just add a couple of salutary notes that are indeed emphasized in the rulebook about what is risky and what is not risky. And most of it is very simple. Don't have lots of valuable stuff and no oomph left to protect yourself. That's more, that's more or less it. It gets more sophisticated, obviously, but new players tend to get it right away. And the, the 
what to me is amazing, and I think largely by virtue of the theming and and by virtue of the way the rules work and how quickly back and forth the 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 winds of fate can change, is that it's hard to have too many hard feelings about a game of Cosmic Frog. I can remember, I'm a bit of a spiteful jerk when it comes to a lot of these things. I can remember that time I was attacked in Kemet when the person really should have attacked somebody else, or that time that somebody went after my fleet in Eclipse and it didn't make any sense for them to do that. In Cosmic Frog, you can't hold grudges. It's just, it's Cosmic Frog. <laughs> it's true. It, it leads to another small weakness, which is like the sort of miss your turn aspect of the game. Because there's different places combat can take place. It's like on the shard or out in the ether, which is just sort of like the space that you float around in before you disgorge into your vault. And if you get booted, if you get lose combat out in the ether, you go into what's called the outer dimensions and you can start missing turns. And the other way, you, and the other way in combat that you can miss turns is what we've been talking about with the oomph. You have to spend a whole turn to get it back. So let's like get another sort of miss your turn that's sort of tied into combat. Yeah. And there are circumstances whereby this can get really egregious and it doesn't require that much of a wild swing of fate, particularly because when you're in the outer dimensions, the only thing you can do is roll a die to try to get back. And the die you roll goes from zero to five. So you might not be coming back very far. And if it's the case that you quote unquote, skip a couple turns, Jim Felly will be the first to tell you, Oh, but you get those turns later when you emerge from the outer dimensions. Well, the action deck is basically, again, another chip pull mechanism where all the, all the action cards get shuffled together. If your cards are out of the action deck, when it gets reshuffled, which has happened to me on two occasions, or at least I've seen happen on two different occasions. What that means is you are literally skipping half of your actions in the next round. That is on top of how crippling it is to be sent to the outer dimensions. So there are variants to address this. I'm a big fan of some of them. But it's one of those ways in which Cosmic Frog is very characteristic, characteristically Jim Felly. Jim Felly doesn't care if his games are fair. Or at least it doesn't seem like he cares if his games are fair. And in that sense, Cosmic Frog is definitely manifestly unfair. Yeah, I'm going to talk about, let's finish up on the variants. There's also some cool variants where the underside of some of these tokens will modify the scoring a little bit as well. So if you get a little bored, I don't know how you'd ever get bored of Cosmic Frog, but say you want to uh, invest more in the scoring mechanisms, like it, make it more you know predominant in the game, then there's two different ways you can play. You can play with them up, so you know more people will attack you or know what you've got in your vault, or you can play with them you know secretly down, so you know you can you know know how, you know what super secret scores you have. I don't think Cosmic Frog is improved by hidden scoring, but again, tastes may vary. And as is probably clear by now, I'm not necessarily a core Jim Felly target audience because while I appreciate his iconoclasm and how everything he does is terribly unique, I do wish. And this is an unreasonable wish that is designed... Like, I, I can't expect Jim Foley to be Reiner Knizia. He's never going to be Reiner Knizia. But part of me feels like, what if we could get that spark of creativity and that strangeness into a game that was as tight as a Reiner Knizia game? Not going to happen. But insofar as Cosmic Frog, I think, represents the, the fullest manifestation of... Felly's weirdness in a game that is approachable and fast moving and quick and accessible and relatively even keeled, I think Cosmic Frog is a triumph. Can't agree more. So you've already touched on the action deck a little bit. I want to go back into it a little bit. Let's. Because I really feel it sort of sets this thing that I said about earlier is, is this tempo. Because you can see which cards have come out and how many actions you have left or if a player has no actions left. And you can sort of, you know, take chances or some take some risks. And I think it leads to interesting gameplay. And so the first round you just go through the action deck. It's just player turns. And then... You add these two cards, which is the, you know, what we talked about, the splinter, the splinter shard card and the 
uh, the Avon, ether, flux. ether flux. This is the wave of mutation that I talked about before. So once every round now, this wave of mutation is going to come around and everyone gets to change up their, you know, special ability if they want to, if they have the, or if they don't have the oomph to keep it. And the other one is the splinter shard, right? It's going to give you this random location on the map and it's going to, you know, initiate the end of the game because it's going to start putting out these, you know, volcanic type cracks in your in your shards and when that track is full then the game will end and i th- i think it's leads to some you know push your luck and you know not knowing when it's going to end and i think it's a great part of the game the game length is generally perfect this is a very fast moving game and it's going to last about 60 to 75 minutes even with large player counts this is a game that thrives on large player counts i played it with three each controlling a single frog it worked and it worked fine but it is better with more the tempo of when the game is going to end usually comes with a bit of surprise and drama. Not so much that it feels completely capricious, but just enough so that it keeps you engaged. And I'd just like to double back with respect to the Ether Flux, because the way that Cosmic Frog manages the flow of special abilities is probably one of the design flourishes that I appreciate most in the game. Because you have these really, really cool special abilities... But you're going to go through the entire deck of special abilities over the course of the game. So you get to see and do lots of different things. And the artwork on these special ability cards is some of the best I've seen in the past five years. I agree. That's it, oh, sorry. It's amazing. I agree. That's my last point, in, which is the components, right? Uh, there's two different kinds of tiles, and the thickness makes them really stand out. And the art and the color variation, unlike another game, is 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 amazing. The sculpts of the frogs are really cool. And, and the neoprene mat, but I just want to get back to the artwork that you already talked about. The cards are ridiculously really cool to look at. The cover of the box, the pictures in the rule book, just everything about the art in this game just leads into this, you know, weird, bizarre theme and brings it all to life. I really, really Absolutely. enjoy playing this game. The ability cards are, are sincerely approaching works of art such that I, I want to handle them carefully because I wouldn't want to rip it. <sighs> oh, Mark. It's out of my system. Is it? I, I are, are, you're done now? I've disgorged all my frog puns. Why, oh, thank you. You're going to keep going? Hop to it. Uh, no, I'm I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm done. <laughs> so here's the thing. To sum up, playing a Jim Felly game is always getting a chance to spend some time in Jim Felly's head. And that has always been interesting. But it has not always been what I would call a compelling gameplay experience. And sometimes there's been a bit of a disconnect between the mechanics of what's going on and the theme or the overall experience or narrative he's trying to convey as far as I'm concerned. And to reiterate, Cosmic Frog is the first time where I really felt everything is coming together in a well-calibrated perfect package. And you get to see the genius, you get to see the weirdness, you get to see the strangeness. But at the same time, it's a really compelling game. I have been looking for a free-for-all kind of battle game where everyone's in everyone else's faces. Not a not a troops on a map game, but specifically a kind of a free-for-all combat game. You know those the, the, like the, the the multiplayer variants that are tacked on to every good two-player skirmish game that makes you wish that you could have this kind of experience. This is the closest I've ever experienced it. It's not really a skirmish game, but it's a game where of every frog against every frog. And, and it's the fact that they're mindless, right? They they're doing this because they they have to. They they're terraforming they, creatures they, basically. They don't they don't know anything else, Mark. They want to eat planetary shards, <laughs> and if you have the planetary shards that you want, they'll come and they'll rip them out of your gullet and, yes. and eat them themselves. This is what these frogs do. They can't help it. I wasn't judging the frogs. No, I'm just I'm just saying that that's the that's the <laughs> that's the flavor of this game. Anyway, 
obviously the world that Jim Felly has made in this instance is so infectious and it has been getting plaudits everywhere. And I think that you really have to experience it to fully appreciate the universe. Take a look at the art. Take a look at the components. Understand that the rulebook does a relatively poor job of conveying the experience that you're going to have. But I wholeheartedly recommend Cosmic Frog, especially, not only, but especially if you're a jaded gamer who's played a whole bunch of other stuff. If you've never played a Jim Felly design, then you absolutely owe it to yourself as a hobbyist gamer to see what he has to do. If you've played a lot of Jim Felly designs, you kind of know what you're in for, but I don't think you're going to be ready for the level of design chops that he has on display here. This has my highest possible recommendation. I'm a massive fan of, of Cosmic Frog. I'd play it anytime. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. From our public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.